From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, July 29th. Visitors to Arches have had some time to try out the National Park's new timed entry system. That requires you to choose a time slot in advance of visiting. It was put in place to reduce crowding that was impacting tourists' experience. Justin Higginbottom speaks with a park representative about some recent survey results and the future of the reservation system. The timed entry reservation system at Arches is pretty popular. That's based on anecdotal evidence, including thousands of reviews online. That's something that we were really excited about and and so happy to see because if you hop on to recreation.gov, which is where you can purchase those timed entry tickets, there's nearly 5,000 reviews and we're at about four, I think it was 4.4 out of five stars. That's Caitlin Thomas. She's a public affairs specialist with the Park Service. The one that stood out to me the most was someone who had been here two Memorial Day weekends in a row. So they were here on Memorial Day 2021 and also Memorial Day 2022. And they compared their experience as night and day. And at the very end of the letter, they said, oh, please keep timed entry forever. That's maybe not so surprising as 59% of survey respondents supported timed entry before it was even implemented. Although, as residents have probably noticed, the lines of cars entering the park haven't disappeared. That, I would say, has been our number one observation or complaint. We have received some comments, especially from locals, about the length of the line. But Thomas says that drivers are waiting only around 30 to 45 minutes to enter. And for arches, that's pretty good. What's really good is that even though those lines might seem a little bit long to someone who is a ticket holder, they are still so much better than they were in previous years, especially last year over Memorial Day weekend, for example, some folks were waiting two, three hours to even get into the park, and some people didn't even make it into the park at all. The park is considering a fast pass lane or improvements to the entrance road. Another complaint comes from tourism industry groups. Nearly 400 signed a letter to the park service asking them to allow travelers to reserve spots further in the future. That would help international tourists plan better. Once inside the park, 51% of summer visitors and 61% of winter visitors say the trails weren't too crowded. The reservation system likely helped, but also the number of those visiting has been down. Arches saw a dip of 27.9% in June. It's similar with other national parks in the country. Yellowstone saw a decrease of 34% on Memorial Day weekend. That was before the massive flooding. And here's some more survey results the Park Service find useful. Arches was the primary reason for tourists visiting the area in the summer, but winter visitors came largely for places outside of the park. 80% of Arches visitors also visited Canyonlands, and over half of Arches visitors spent three or more days in the area. The reservation is still in its pilot stage. Park employees will comb through results until October. And we're just going to collect all that data, sift through all of it, and determine how we can change the system in the future if we do decide to move forward with time entry. If Arches continues their timed entry program, they will be joining only five or six national parks in the country who have a similar system. Justin Higginbottom for KZMU News. A Wyoming judge issued a temporary restraining order on Wednesday, blocking the state's trigger ban on most abortions from going into effect. Kyle Mackey of KHOL in Jackson Hole reports for Rocky Mountain Community Radio. 
The ruling came the same day the law was set to start being enforced. And two days after, a group of abortion providers, individuals, and the state's largest abortion fund sued to block the ban. District Court Judge Melissa Owens determined that the plaintiffs showed the possibility of, quote, irreparable harm, both to pregnant women and a Jackson doctor who joined in the suit, because they faced potential health risks and criminal punishment, according to the Jackson Hole News and Guide. Another plaintiff, founder and president of Wellspring Health Access, Julie Burkhardt, described the ruling as a temporary victory in a statement put out after the decision. Kyle Mackey, K-12 News. Utah's own abortion trigger ban continues to be on hold. The ban would outlaw abortion in Utah except for a few limited circumstances. As a lawsuit against this ban makes its way through the courts, abortion remains legal in the state for up to 18 weeks of pregnancy. Mountain towns across the West have seen an influx of development in recent years. That's certainly the case in Colorado. Much of this development has been concentrated in luxury tourism or housing, which has driven up costs and pushed out many locals. One town near Telluride on Colorado's western slope has largely avoided that fate and is proud of it. But as KSJD and Rocky Mountain Community Radio's Lucas Brady Woods reports, a new land sale could change that. Skip Zeller has just pulled off Highway 145 and is standing next to his truck. He's north of Rico, Colorado, with a view of the town and the surrounding mountains. The elevation here, almost 9,000 feet. Rico, when I got here, and I use these terms very loosely, but it consisted of a bunch of hippies and a bunch of uh, retired miners. Zeller has lived in Rico for 40 years and is an organizer with the Rico Land Collaborative. To this day, the town has largely avoided the influx of real estate development that many mountain towns, like nearby Telluride, have already experienced. It's still a very small community. Less than 200 people live in Rico year-round, and it doesn't even have a sewer system. Rico is one of the few ex-mining towns that still maintains some sort of a reasonable amount of community. and, And... We'd like to keep it that way. (laughs) But more than 1,100 acres of undeveloped mountainside are for sale, right across the valley from where Zeller is standing. Some of the real estate for sale also falls within Rico's town boundaries. And while the sale is raising some red flags, Zeller says there's not necessarily anything to be worried about. Development is inevitable, but we are all hoping that organizations who have gotten involved very much also want to work with this town and do what's best for the town. This isn't the first time there's been the possibility of real estate development around RICO, but so far, large-scale projects have never really taken off. Whatever happens this time, town manager Chauncey McCarthy says the town will be involved in the land's sale and anything that's built on it. There'll be heavy community uh, input on how the project moves forward. The biggest thing is, does town want to see a growth in that nature. There are no specific plans for the site at this point, and McCarthy says there are some major challenges to building on it. Could the town be able to supply water to all of these sites? And then there's limited access up there, and there's no infrastructure up there as well. But McCarthy also says development isn't inherently a bad thing. 
Market rate or luxury housing can definitely be a part of it, but so can other types of development that benefit a community like affordable housing or public spaces. McCarthy says potential conservation is also a significant consideration for the town. A few local conservation groups are already interested in working with the town and future property owners. Patrick Gardner runs the Trust for Public Land and says there are a lot of possibilities for conservation on land like this. It could be, you know, acquired by the town for open space. Um, Some of it could be set aside for development, ideally affordable housing or some sort of development that's in line with, you know, the, the vision of the future of RICO. Some of it could have conservation easements on there, which would restrict development. Eric Saunders is the real estate agent representing the land. He's with Telluride Properties, which bills itself as Telluride's premier boutique real estate firm. Whoever buys the land will have to work with the interests of the town, but according to Saunders, development could bring major improvements. Development, you know, gets a bad gets a bad rap a lot of times, but if they do decide to develop in Rico, you're going to look and you're going to see uh, them probably provide a lot of public uh, benefit in the form of water, sewer. Uh, some other public benefit, trail improvements, things like that. A slick real estate listing also says the land is a one-of-a-kind development opportunity, and there is interest from potential buyers, some from as far away as China, Japan, and the United Kingdom. Saunders says he's already toured a few of them around the site. At the end of the day, though, the land sale is in its early stages, and all parties say they are committed to collaborating with the town and the community of Rico. And for Skip Zeller, that's what's important. Whoever might attempt this development, the very first thing should be that organization, that individual coming to the town at a town board meeting, presenting his or her or their plan and engaging the town. For now, residents, town management, conservationists, and realtors are on the same page. But if development does happen on the land one day, it would undoubtedly be a big change for the landscape around Rico. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Lucas Brady-Woods. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. A fire broke out along Potash Road on Tuesday, burning several acres of vegetation. Sophia Fisher with the Times Independent has more on their coverage. There was a fire down Potash Road or Highway 279 Tuesday afternoon. Um, I don't know if anyone was downtown, but we heard like a billion sirens go past the office around 3.15 p.m. Um, and they were going to mile around mile marker four. There was a conflagration there. A bunch of different agencies responded and thankfully were able to put the fire out. The cause of the fire is unknown. You know, we think it could have been a careless smoker. It could have been lightning. There were storms in the area that mm. day. But whatever the reason, thankfully it's out. Nobody seems to have been injured um, or or died, and it doesn't seem like there was major damage to any structures. So you said, you know, down Highway 279, that's Potash Road, milepost four, fire Mm -hmm. crews were on scene pretty fast. Yes, and they they returned Wednesday morning, too, just to make sure all the hot spots were out. Um, So, you know, everything seems safe down there. Um, And interestingly, uh, the Moab Valley Fire Department was down there and they were simultaneously getting a bunch of other calls about flooding that was happening in town. Um, I'm sure people have seen photos and videos on Facebook, but there were intense rainstorms in the LaSalle Mountains uh, Tuesday afternoon, resulting in downstream flash flooding on Pack and Mill Creeks. Very dramatic. So same day as the fire, these floods come down. Same time period, (laughs) honestly. And there's some pictures in the Times Independent. Do you want to tell us about um, one of those? 
Sure. Yeah, actually, I was on my way to pick up veggies from YGP, shout out to YGP, and was walking down 300 South over the bridge over Mill Creek. And my goodness, it was many feet higher than it normally is. It had totally flooded the tunnel that goes under 300, if folks are familiar with that. And I walked upstream for a little while, took some more photos. So those are there. And yeah, intense flooding and, and some debris coming downstream. It's funny, too. It's almost exactly like a year to the day of that kind of 100 year storm we had last year, mm, yeah. which flooded my backyard personally and probably a lot of other people's. So it's just that time of year again. And Mm -hmm. actually, that segue is really well into another story I wrote this week, which was happily very well timed about the monsoon season. Okay, first of all, there's a beautiful um, photo on the B section in the Times Independent. Um, Was this one you captured, Sophia? It was, yes. I was running around Monday trying to get a picture of a storm. And the best I got were storm clouds over the LaSalle's, which have been appearing there basically every day. Monsoon season is here. Tell us about what that means. Yeah, the monsoons are back. Uh, That means afternoon storms, that means thunder and lightning potentially, you know, the the chance of flash floods, things like that, but, you know, much needed moisture. Um, So as folks probably know, southeastern Utah and and Arizona and a few other states get hit with this annual summer monsoon season because of, you know, the various atmospheric currents and what Mm -hmm. they're doing. So that brings a lot of, like, intense afternoon storms to us. And that's actually, you know, it's an important source of rainfall. It helps with, you know, flora and fauna that have already gone through several months of intense heat, um, not to mention refilling like our water resources Um, and you know last week we saw a bit of a gap in the monsoons we were getting some nice storms and then it was just sunny and hot and really disgusting in my opinion you know staying inside (laughs) all day but I spoke with some meteorologists and those moisture surges that caused the monsoons have actually come back which is Mm, awesome after that lapse it wasn't a big deal you know they were just gone but they're back and we're seeing um, more and more hopeful rain now. So you spoke to somebody at the Utah Climate Center. Did they put this into context? Like, is this a good season? I spoke with John Meyer um, at the Utah Climate Center and he said it's usually, you know, monsoons can be kind of feast or famine. Last year, he said, was definitely feasting. And he said, this year's good. It's not, you know, record-breaking or as exciting as Mm -hmm. it was last year. Um, But definitely a good, strong start. He said that folks at the Climate Center had been keeping an eye on our area Mm -hmm. for drought degradation, so the worsening of drought conditions at the beginning of the season. But thankfully, because of the moisture, they've been able to kind of take their eye off our area, which is awesome. Okay. Now, of course, we are still in a drought, even though it is (laughs) raining, you know, this week. You know, did Mm -hmm. they talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. And he said that, you know, a monsoon season, one alone is not going to make or break a drought or change it that much. It can really just take the edge off things, I guess. So it's like, it's not getting that much worse because we're kind of holding it at bay. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely not like broadly improving the water situation in our area either. Um, So it's, it's good. It's, I think it's really cool because of just the weather systems and how fun those are to watch. But it's definitely not going to like broadly change, you know, the situation here. Um, There's another piece in the Times Independent you wanted to mention about the new mental health crisis line in our nation. So tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, starting July 16th, which, you know, a few weeks ago, um, anyone in the United States can call, text, or chat the number 988. Um, so it's kind of like a companion number to 911 almost. Um, and they'll be matched with immediate crisis counselors and mental health resources. So this is for anyone experiencing suicidality, you know, mental health issues, substance use issues. Uh, etc. So it's really exciting. So there have been crisis lines. They're usually numbers that no one knows off the, you know, top of their head. So is the idea that 988 is something that we can all remember? Exactly. Especially if somebody's in distress. I mean, like, you know, you're not going to go Google this like long 10 digit number. So the three digit numbers is intended to just 
make it so much easier for folks in crisis to, you know, get the help that they need. And you talked to some people who work in um, mental health here in our community. Did they have anything to say about it? Yeah, um, Kelland Brewer, he's the clinic director for Four Corners Behavioral Health here. He said he was definitely excited to see the number. You know, he talked me through kind of what happens when somebody calls that number. So if you um, are in Utah, you'll, you'll call the number and you'll be offered a veterans crisis line or a Spanish language line. But if you don't select those, you'll be matched with the Utah crisis line, which has already existed. Mm. It's run by the University of Utah, and you'll be matched with a crisis counselor who's trained to provide you with, like, kind of empathetic counseling and listening. So they're not here to, you know, like, give you advice on a problem, but they're there to listen and mm-hmm. be very supportive and just, like, let you talk through whatever you need to talk through. And, you know, if, if something's very serious or if you're in imminent danger, then they'll reach out to Four mm-hmm. Corners, and Four Corners will actually send somebody in person. But that's mm-hmm. very much down the line. That's not the main, you know, sure. the only intention of the line okay um, is it also for information yeah they can help you with resources mm-hmm. especially if you want to call about somebody you're concerned about for suicidality mm-hmm. or mental health issues we can definitely match you up with resources so i know we don't often talk about opinion columns on this program but i did notice that you know you had an opinion on this crisis helpline and you did write an opinion column this week mm-hmm. um, because you worked at one can you can I you did. tell us a little bit about your experience there yeah yeah i volunteered for a crisis helpline back in boston when i was in high school it's called Samaritans. Um, and, but we would get some calls routed through the National Suicide Prevention Line, mm-hmm. which is also where you could get matched up if you call this 988 number. Sure. Um, yeah, it was really an incredible experience. I mean, they, they train you for about 40 hours with empathetic listening techniques, things such as like verbal nods when you're on the phone with people and just ways to make people feel like they're heard. Um, you know, mm-hmm. one important thing is that a ton of our callers were actually not suicidal. They were not having suicidal thoughts when they called. So I encourage, you know, you don't have to be having suicidal ideation to call one of these numbers if you just Mm. feel like you're in distress and you could benefit from you know a listening ear then Mm -hmm. the numbers for you well thank you Sophia anywhere else in this paper that you want to take us so folks may already know that um, for operators of off-highway vehicles in Utah on public lands they will be required to take um, a course and a test starting next year this is like a 30-minute thing it's happens once in a lifetime it can be taken online and it's the result of a state bill that passed through the legislature um, this past general session to increase education of OHV operators I spoke with Brett Stewart who was kind of the mastermind behind the bill as well as Chase Peely who works for the state and is developing the course and Andrea Brand our own Sand Flats Recreation Director uh, because actually some Grand County staffers were able to add some content and some questions to this course and test, which is really, really cool. So I'm sure the course is going to go over safety, um, not going off trail. Um, does it also address noise? Yes, there is a definitely a section on driving through residential neighborhoods, which, you know, as folks know, Moab is maybe the only or one of the only places in Utah where popular trails are accessed only through residential neighborhoods, you know, introducing a lot of noise to streets. Uh, They actually, the course is going to be using some clips from a video that Sandflats made called Five Tips for an Awesome Moab Adventure. That has a section on driving through residential areas Mm -hmm. and I spoke with Chase Peely and he said there's a section on just like being a good neighbor, you know, understanding that as an OHV operator, you are a guest in somebody's home, Mm -hmm. essentially, and you need to obey traffic laws, not blast your music, not rev up through neighborhoods, all that stuff. And remind us again, um, who needs to take this course? Yes, anyone operating an OHV, so a type 1, 2, or 3 OHV on public lands in Utah. Um, There are a couple exclusions those exclusions are snowmobiles, um, instruments of husbandry, and 
anyone on a guided tour or like a sanctioned OHV mm-hmm. event. Okay. So tours and events are exempt, but otherwise you have to take one whether you're from Utah, from anywhere else, and it's once in a lifetime. I could see this popping up at rental companies. If you're mm-hmm. renting an OHV, they have to let you know that you have to take this course. Um, or if you're bringing your own OHV into our community. Totally. And they're still working on logistics about like, you know, how exactly you'll take it, how you'll prove that you've taken it. But mm-hmm. um, again, this will be launched starting in January slash February of next year. So there's a little bit of time there. Sophia Fisher, staff writer at The Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Tuesday's flash flood in Mill Creek broke records, according to the Moab Sun News. Reporter Allison Harford has more on their coverage. On July 26th, uh, Mill Creek and Pack Creek both flooded. I think the big one that we saw in town was Mill Creek because it flooded the bike path. The biggest place to see it was right behind Woody's mm. and kind of when it was going past um, YGP. And it was impressive. The water was churning and brown and it was going really fast and it just looked like a huge flash flood. There are some um, videos on the Mubs and News social media accounts with the flood in that very location. Yeah, it was pretty impressive and it looked impressive for a good reason. Um, it set a record water height. So there are four gauge stations in Mill Creek and Pack Creek. Um, and the uppermost Mill Creek gauge reported a record maximum stream height of 10.78 feet. And that was high enough that technicians wanted to double check the, that the gauge was actually working oh, wow. um, because it just went outside of all of these U.S. Geologic Survey tables. So did they check? And, and what was the result? Yeah, they checked. Um, they measured the high water again at the lowermost gauge. This one hydrologist described the lower gauge as a reality check um, Mm -hmm. because the technicians were out there and they could measure the gauge like while this peak high water was happening. Mm -hmm. And the lowermost gauge reported 10.4 feet, which is less than the higher one, but it's still um, off the charts. Right, because typically Mill Creek right now is running around three feet. Right. This was a very impressive flood. And Chris Wilkowski, who is the hydrologist, he said that his preliminary estimate for the cubic feet per second was 1,500, which is a record for the station um, that's been in operation since 1987. All right. Record flood coming through Milk Creek. Anything else to say about this piece? Yeah. So the Grand Water and Sewer Service Agency is currently working on repairing infrastructure. Um, so some of the infrastructure used to divert water from Mill Creek to Ken's Lake uh, filled up with mud mm. and it's now blocking flow into the lake. So staff at Grand Water and Sewer Service Agency are working on clearing that out. Any other damages or was that pretty much what the Moabs and News heard? No, that was pretty much the biggest one. But if you go down to the creek now, you can see like all the flattened plants and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And it stretches out um, for quite a bit. The creek was running very fast. Right. And very high. Yeah. All right. There is more in the Moab Sun News. I'm hoping you can highlight. Um, You did a profile about a local. Yeah. So Moab resident Christoph Shork won the Hagen Cup at the Tevis Cup Ride, um, which is a prestigious and rugged one-day horse race through 100 miles of California. Wow. I'm familiar with Christoph because our reporter, Justin Higginbottom, last year, I believe, did an audio portrait of him Mm -hmm. and his horses. Yeah. And I had not heard of endurance horse riding before he did that. Um, So 
tell us and remind us about that, what he does. Yeah, yeah. So this endurance race um, that he just won is the oldest modern-day equine endurance race. Um, It's been held annually since 1955. And he says it's really quite extreme. And with endurance horse racing, competitors really have to judge the speed that they're going by caring for their horses it's almost the same as endurance running like you want to take it slow and find a good pace and he also said that while he takes care of the horse um this race he won with his horse named blizzard of oz he said that the horse can also take care of him back so this race that he won tell us about the race are there challenges or is it just challenge enough to like go 100 miles yeah so it's challenge enough just to (laughs) go 100 miles (laughs) um to receive a completion award belt like not everyone does um competitors have to ride from tahoe to auburn in under 24 hours and by the end have their horses deemed healthy and able to ride further Mm, okay so they can't be just running their horse to the ground right okay i think he's won awards in the past if i remember right so he said he's ready to slow down which (laughs) in his case means from going from competing in 50 races a year to around 30 um and he's focusing more on training other riders So he has a ranch in Moab and he opened the Global Endurance Training Center where he trains professional riders from around the world and local teenagers. And so he's trying to slow down and focus more on the training aspect. Did Kristoff say anything about, you know, why he's passionate about this sport, even though he's slowing down? Yeah, so he grew up in Germany, um, which he said has a deep and historic horse culture, although he still says that he was the odd one out in his family um, (laughs) because of how much he loves riding horses. And there's more in the Moab Sun News. You did a piece on native plants. Yeah, so there have been a lot of groups in Moab that have kind of started picking back up again this year after taking pandemic hiatuses. And one of those groups is the Canyonlands chapter of the Native Plant Society. So I talked to Pam Hackley and Diane Ackerman. Um, Ackerman is the president of the society and Pam Hackley um, is a member. And they both said that They just feel really strongly that understanding the environment around you is really important for understanding the community in Moab. Mm -hmm. And also, Grand County is home to 125 rare plant species, which is one of the highest numbers in the state. And Utah itself is a state that has a lot of endemic plants. It's rated sixth in the country for like the most number of endemic and rare plant species and that's kind of because of our elevation differences here Mm -hmm. so there are a lot of like different places for plants to flourish and I was looking into this and the plant that I found most interesting there's a critically imperiled tiny delicate multi-petaled yellow flower and it's only found one place in the entire world which is Pritchett Canyon. Wow I did not know that thank you. So yeah our chapter of the Native Plant Society looks out for those plants and they also identify um, new places that could use conservation efforts Mm. and so this year they worked with the Grand Canyon Trust to try to start getting this region of the Manti LaSalle National Forest um, near the Bull Canyon Overlook and Dinosaur Track site. Um, They want to make this 
region a botanical area so that Mm. it's protected. Area is really thick with old growth ponderosa pine trees. Okay, so they are back in action. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You said, you know, they have this proposal, things that they want to see. How do they go out and basically monitor or take care of these rare plants in our community? Yeah, a lot of it is just stewardship. Mm. Um, So they try to educate people a lot. Mm. Um, Yeah, their main goal is just to get people really interested in the plant life in this area. And so the chapter works a lot with other local conservation groups, um, like the Butterfly and Moths group that just Mm -hmm. had a butterfly count, Mm -hmm. um, and the Moab Bird Club. Are they looking for more people to be part of it? How How do you get involved? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they're always looking for volunteers to help care for this native plant garden that they have, um, at the Community Recycling Center. And they also host, um, hikes with local experts to discover more about the plant life in this region. And so, um, people who want to get involved with the group can contact Diane Ackerman at her email, which is Diane Ackerman, um, A-C-K-E-R-M-A-N 13 at yahoo.com. Allison Hartford, staff reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the Weekly News Reel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thank you for tuning in and supporting KZMU Community Powered Radio.